so it's good to be with you today. And then as well as uh, um, just kind of share a little background with you, we are uh, the parents of seven children, as it's stated there in the bulletin, uh, but we have eight grandchildren, and then uh, we're expecting three more grandchildren this year, all within a span, I think about four weeks, is that right, honey? Um, and so it starts at the end of September going into October, and so the girls have all said, Mom, we want you there. So we've got to duplicate Deb to be able to be at three different places sort of all at the same time or it's just going to be very, very busy on the road. But uh, we're, we just uh, enjoy each of the grandchildren. We especially had the opportunity of enjoying our grandchildren. You know about the power outage up in Lynchburg and just going on up to Maryland. Well, that night we had seven of the grandchildren at our home. And our daughter called and said, Hey, have you looked outside recently? Uh, listen, we're having to turn back. They were at a function for the hospital and they were trying to get to our house to pick up the kids and uh, they had to turn around and go back and uh, I, I hadn't looked and so I went outside and when I looked to the west, a little bit to the south, it was just complete light and intensity of lightning. It never got dark and then I heard the roar and it's only the second time in our 36 years of marriage that I said, everybody to the basement, because <laughs> the wind was coming, and we all went down, and now we had three babies, three grandchildren that were toddlers or infant, and we had to get them, and then the other four, getting the lamps, getting the blankets and all that, rushing down to the basement. Oh, it was fun, and then when the power went out, and so we're all congregated there in the basement and just listening for and trying to calm them. And, you know, and one of the kids, uh, it was Isaac, said, Pop, can you pray for us? <laughs> so we had prayer there in the basement. And, yes, God just ministers grace. And, of course, the power stayed up for a while. But that, that was an exciting time. And finally, one of our daughters were able to come back and picked up her four or five kids. But then we had the other two, my my son-in-law and daughter, they were taking a vacation during that time. So it was uh, quite exciting. So anyway, but it's good to be with you. And that sort of ties into the message today. If you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. And here, uh, I've titled the message, and there's an outline for you, if you'd like to follow there on the, on the last page of your bulletin. But it's basically, you know, how to have peace in the midst of troubling times. How to have peace in the midst of troubling times. Now, I'd like to read just a little excerpt as you're turning there uh, in your Bibles. But a little excerpt. It was a book that's entitled Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. And this little excerpt says, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. After a terrible day at school, a horrible visit with the dentist, and a no good stop at the shoe store, boy Alexander slumped in his chair at the supper table, and he stated his troubles just continued. There were lima beans for dinner, and I hate lima beans. My bath was too hot, 
I got soap in my eyes, my marble went down the drain, and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony and not with me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good very bad day. Well, you know, from a child's perspective, that was a horrible day. But, you know, life has its challenges and its experiences, doesn't it? So as we grow and mature, yes, there's the challenges of which all of us have faced in those troubling times. And in the very instance of whether the whole world situation, our nation situation, the uncertainty of the day, economically, politically, the world situation that we're facing, that it's very troubling times. So the instance here is how do we deal with that? How do we respond to this as being Christians, our faith in Christ and and looking unto Him? And how is it that we can have peace in the midst of such turmoil? Well, here the context for John chapter 14 If you remember in John chapter 13, Jesus just shared with them, listen, one of you is going to betray me and that I'm going to be uh, given over to the authorities and yes, they're going to torture me, they're going to punish me and I'm going to die upon a cruel, rugged cross. And the disciples, oh, being so troubled in heart, wait a minute, Lord, uh, we've been serving with you now for these three years and we've seen the miracles that you have performed and, and the people respond to you in such a powerful way. And, and, and the Roman army, the Roman government, they're so oppressive and, and the very corruption of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the political environment of Jerusalem and the religious environment. And it was so frustrating and, and the instance, too, is where a Roman soldier could come into that household and take one of your children forcibly and put him into slave labor. There was troubling times. And now Jesus is saying, Lord, you were to be the Messiah. You were, you were to deliver us from all of these things. And now Jesus is saying to him, I'm going to be crucified and, and die a cruel, rugged death. But Listen, I'm going to be resurrected and through on the third day. But the disciples just focused on, I'm going to die. And who's going to help us, O Lord, in the midst of such troubling times? And so here are these first three verses. This intimate exchange between Jesus and his disciples. And I'm just going to focus on the first three. And where Jesus said, now let your heart, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. So what are the truths that we can learn from these passages of which can minister to us in the midst of troubling times and how we can have peace. Now, the very first point is, first of all, is let God have command of your heart. Let Jesus have command of your heart. Now, notice what he states. Let not your heart, quit letting your heart be so disturbed. Don't focus upon the very crucifixion, but listen, you're you're negating that truth and where I said there's going to be the resurrection. 
but you need to let me to have command of your heart. And that very first verse says, you believe in God, you believe also in me. Now remember is that John's gospel, you know, he has seven specific miracles of which he chose to, to include in his gospel that affirmed who Jesus was. Remember, Jesus says, the Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. All right, so Jesus was saying, listen, you believe in God, you believe in Jehovah, you've read the Old Testament, you know the truths and the miracles by which God performed in delivering his nation Israel and preserving them through all of history. That very same God and I, we are one. So if you believe in him, believe also in me. And so John included in his gospel those miracles. For example, in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, remember when he changed the wine, uh, the water into wine. Well, that's the very instance of an act of creation. He changed the molecular structure of, you know, you kids in the beginning chemistry, water is H2O. But then he changed and included carbohydrates and sugars and everything else within that very content. He did an act of creation. Listen, only God can do that. Therefore, Jesus is God. The second miracle of dealing with healing the nobleman's son in John chapter 4, in verses 43 through 54. Remember, the nobleman had come to Jesus and asked for the healing of his son. And Jesus said, listen, go your way, your son is healed. All right, now Jesus was in one city, but the nobleman was in another locality, which was over 15, 20 miles away. And Jesus said, listen, your son is healed. And as he's going back, his servants meet him. And it says it was close to the noon hour. And the servant said unto him, oh, sir, your son is healed. And he says, when did that take place? It was yesterday about this very hour. And the nobleman said it was immediately at that point of when Jesus said, you go your way, your son is healed. You know, it's just very interesting is that Jesus was not limited by time nor space. You know, uh, the nobleman didn't have to show a picture to Jesus. Say, all right, now, Jesus, this is my son. Now, now Jesus, listen, my address is, you know, 113 Tyler Terrace, Forest, Virginia. Oh, oh, and then, too, you need to know which bedroom he's in. If you go down the hallway and you turn right, it's the second bedroom on the right. No, Jesus said, your son is healed immediately. He knew right where he was. Jesus was not limited by time nor by space, distance. Only God can do that. Therefore, Jesus is God. Another one was dealing with the impotent man that was healed in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. And it stated there that it was on the Sabbath day. See, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Only God is Lord of the Sabbath, but yet Jesus is. In demonstrating this very miracle, therefore, Jesus is God. You're getting the point, aren't you? That, listen, disciples, have I been so long with you that you don't know who I am? So, therefore, here, what he's stating to us is that how to have peace, then let me have command of your heart. Now, how do we do that? Let's take a look at verse 2 is that we have to accept what Christ has prepared for you and for me. So you have all the, Jesus is affirming you, believe in God, believe also in me, let me have command of your heart. How do we do that? Well, the second point is accept what Christ has prepared. Now take a look at verse 2. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. 
If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. First of all, it states that Christ has prepared. The Lord Jesus, He has prepared a home for us in heaven. Where He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. Or literally, it's kind of like an inn. You know, the when we've traveled, or you probably have traveled, and you're going up the interstate, but you're not able to make your destination. And, and kind of like, okay, now we just punch in our GPS. All right, what's the local places that we might be able to find to stay for the night? There's an inn. Well, see, when you pull in and you uh, get that motel or hotel reservation, uh, for us, we're the economy variety, Motel 6. (laughs) So we pull in. Now, do we plan to stay there for the rest of our lives? No, it's a temporary place. And so here, the instance is that the focal point for what Christ is trying to tell is that, listen, this earth is not our home. We are simply, as the old gospel song, we're just simply passing through. And the other thing is that, listen, where he says, in my Father's house are the very many rooms, is that, listen, for whoever wants to come can come, but you have to be able to accept the second point. So here, the very first thing is that he's prepared a home for us in heaven. But what is the very way that we get to that very heaven is that He has prepared the way of salvation. So how do we have that security of that home that we have in heaven? Is that we must accept what Christ has prepared. He's prepared the way. If you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 20. It's just a great verse. And where the Hebrew writer, you know, the very theme of which the Hebrew writer was, was stated that, listen, the, the, the Hebrew Christians were encountering a persecution. And some of them were saying, you know what? This Christian road is just not all that easy. And, boy, we didn't have all this difficulty when we were doing the Old Testament sacrifices. And, and they were kind of like, you know, they needed some encouragement. So the Hebrew writer says, listen, you're thinking about going back and putting yourself under the law and doing the Old Testament sacrificial systems where you never know. He said, listen, Jesus is so much better. And so as you read through the book of Hebrews, you see that word just appearing over and over. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Aaron. Jesus is better than Joshua. Just over and over, better priesthood, better sacrifice. And so he was trying to infirm and, and encourage them in their faith. And so in this one instance of where, uh, of, of where he's writing about Christ, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, he says, Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, he's made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I like that word forerunner. It's the Greek word prajamas. And there's kind of like two pictures. And you know, the Greek language can be such a graphic picture. And the prodromos was one who would go before preparing the way. It was like the, it was used of the little boat that would come out of the harbor of Alexandria, Egypt in those biblical times. And that little pilot ship was called the prodromos. And these big kind of like sailing ships that were laden with wheat, well, the captain did not know the channels by which the Nile River would make in that delta region coming into the Mediterranean Sea. And so he was unfamiliar uh, with the correct path to be able to go into the safety of the harbor. Well, 
that pilot ship, the captain of that pilot ship, he did know the very intricate way and the changes that would occur, the silt movements. He knew where the deepest part, being able to take that ship into the safety of the harbor. And he was the progemos, follow me. And so that big wheat ship would just follow that, that little bitty boat into the safety of the harbor. He prepared the way. He pointed the correct way. That was one way the word was used. Another way that the word was used, it was dealing with the description of a little Roman patrol or kind of like the Roman army that had a little patrol or a platoon group. And what their responsibility was that the legion, the main battle group of the Roman army of a thousand or plus soldiers, the little progemos group, the platoon, their responsibility was to prepare the way for the main force. And what they would do is that they would scout out Were there any booby traps? Were there any ambush places? Was it safe for that huge legion army to come behind them? And what they would do is that they prepared the way, followed this particular way. They would put a mark, and and here the main legion army then would follow because the progermos, that little platoon, prepared the way for the safety of that legion army. Now here where the writer is applying this to Jesus he says, listen, how is it that we, you know, let God have command of our hearts? How do we do that? Except what God has provided, what Christ has provided. He's prepared a place for us in heaven. But how do we achieve that? We must follow the way that Jesus has prepared. He says, you have to follow me because it's by my sacrifice is that as I go to the cross that I atoned, I died in your place. Remember Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, I've not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. Where the Hebrew writers say, listen, Jesus on that cross has paved the way that we can enjoy the eternity of our relationship with him, but we must go the blood-sprinkled way. Where the Hebrew writer, again, Hebrews chapter 9, where it says in verse 14, oh, How much more shall the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, spot to God? Oh, he has purged our conscience from from dead works that we're able to serve the very true and living God. In verse 24 of that same chapter, for Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the very presence of God for us. In verse 19 of chapter 10, having therefore boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Listen, friend, the world wants to say there's many ways to heaven. No, there's only one. And it's the only one is through the very blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was April 8th, 1978 when John Durden was so convicted of his sins that I had sinned against my Heavenly Father, the one who loved me and gave Himself for me, that I shook my face in the many years of just living in rebellion towards Him. It was a young man or a young teenager that my father, he was the high school principal where I attended and I was known as goody-goody two-shoes. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't get away with anything because the teachers were... Hey, there's a direct line to the principal's office. Do you know what your son did today? (laughs) And I would hear about it when I got home. 
But in my senior year of high school, my dad always wanted to be the principal of an elementary school. And so he got that transfer, so that authority figure was taken away. And when that authority was taken away, John Durden did what John Durden wanted to do. I got in with the wrong crowd. I got into the drugs and alcohol. That was my lifestyle for the next five years. And I met my wife at Ridgecrest Baptist Assembly Campground. And 70% of the couples that meet there get married. Isn't that something? Uh, and anyway, we, I, I grew up in church. My parents took me to church. I had a knowledge of God, but I didn't have possession of. And so everyone asked me the questions, are you a Christian? Deb shared with me, and we met with a pastor, kind of doing the premarital counseling before we got married, and I shared my testimony, and sort of flimsy testimony, but I shared it. It seemed like it passed the test, but there was no change. There was not the reality of Christ in my life. And so Deb and I married, and, and Deb was a very committed Christian, and I was not, and and in those first, that first year and a half of our marriage was really rocky. She was wanting to be committed in, in serving the Lord, and John Durden was wanting to live for myself. Just to give a little, you know, go to church Sunday morning, but that's it. Don't do anything else. You know, I, I like to sing, and so we'd sing in the choir. We'd do our Christian thing. But then going home, there was the arguments, there was the fussing, there was the feuding. And God was just putting pressure upon me. I hated work. I was an elementary school teacher. It was that philosophy of that time. Be a friend. Don't be the teacher or disciplinarian to the children. You be a friend to them. You know what happened to me? And trying to do it. They ran over me like a tank. I didn't have control over the classroom. It was chaos. I was miserable at work, miserable at home. God was just putting pressure. And the folks at church really didn't know what was going on. And it was one night where Deb just said, that's it. And she walked out the door of that apartment, was going to get in her car. And I went out after her. I said, maybe, listen, there's something that we can do. She had forgotten her car keys. <laughs> and so we had to go back into the apartment. But Deb and I, we looked back at that particular point. If she had gotten in that car and left, we wouldn't be here together today. It would have been a broken marriage. Someone was praying for us at that time. And we stayed together. And, and it was where God was using the faithful preaching of a pastor, David Howe, there at Edgewood Baptist Church in Columbus, Georgia. It was the consistent witness of a few people that, was, that God was using to touch my heart. Roe Reagan, who just a civil service worker, Don Everman, a UPS truck driver, my brother-in-law, Bill Neal. God was using their witness and God was just, just grinding me to powder. And it was April 8th, 1978, where, oh Lord, please forgive me. And I accept you to be my Lord and Savior. Oh, I just so wish I'd done it sooner. The freedom and the very liberty that my sins were forgiven. The relationship that was restored where God did a gracious work in Deb and I's marriage. The very seven children that we now enjoy. The grandchildren that Satan so wanted to keep from ever happening. 
Oh, just to be fruit and the joy of what God has done. Listen, it's only through the blood-sprinkled way. We have to accept. We have to accept what Christ has prepared for us of coming to the cross and accepting Him. If there's someone here who doesn't know, oh, how I, I encourage, I beg, I plead with you, what a joy it would be of where you come to faith in Christ. Well, so we have to let God command our hearts. How do we do that? We have to accept what Christ has prepared. He's prepared a place for us in heaven. And how can we be assured that we're able to spend that eternity with Him is by accepting what He has done on the cross at Calvary. And so as a result, what do we do here and now? Here the very third point is live expecting His soon return. Live expecting His soon return. Now go back to John chapter 14. And there in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now I want you to turn, once we have that verse, but turn back to 1 Thessalonians. That great book that Paul was writing to encourage them pertaining to the second return of Christ. And we see that very theme. At the end of each chapter, Paul gives an exhortation. He's telling them, listen, Jesus is going to come back. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, where he says, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. That whole chapter is dealing with it. Now, as a result of our salvation experience, we're, we're ministering, we're serving. It's no longer a me orientation. It's God as a result of the gracious gift that you've given unto me and the relationship that I have, I want to serve others. Your pastor Jeff, and, and there's some who are within the church that went to Costa Rica, their desire to be able to serve in another, another nation, to be able to share the gospel to children, young people, to adults there. You're part of that, the support that you've given. But see, as we minister, or if you're serving in any capacity here, We're to serve mindful that Jesus could return at any moment. I'm not doing my ministry and service as the applause of man, the applause of the crowd. No, I'm doing my ministry and service out of a motivation of love of what God has done in my heart and in my life. So chapter 1, you be looking for the return of Christ as we serve. In chapter 2, in the midst of their persecution. Chapter 2 and verse 14 of Thessalonians where he says, For you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are Christ Jesus. For you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. So here's the persecution. And then in verse 19 he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? Listen, when, it, when it's tough, when it's not popular to be a Christian, and the intensity of our persecution, if we're living in the understanding that this is not my home, this is not my utopia, this is not my final destination, I keep my eyes fixed upon Christ, then I can endure the persecution. So therefore, because I'm expecting His return. In chapter 3 of First Thessalonians, we're to remain steadfast in the midst of suffering. 
in verses 3 and 4, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we were appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, difficulties, as it came to pass, and you know. Our family has had different experiences where our youngest son, Jonathan, at the age of eight, he was diagnosed with five autoimmune diseases. Juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, Raynaud's phenomena, which is a vascular degeneration, the hands and feet. Dermatomyositis, which is a muscular degeneration. Lupus, which is a cartilage connective tissue degeneration. And scleroderma, which is systemic, it attacks the organs. See our sons, how do you get through something? Or the instance where some of you have seen the suffering of a loved one through a sickness, through cancer, whatever it may be. How do you get through something like that? I cannot go through that valley alone. It's only as I understand that, listen, this is not my final home. Lord, if you choose to take my son. As David said pertaining to his son as he was begging for his life. But listen, he may not be able to come to me, but I can go to him. See, because heaven is our final destination. Chapter 4, in verses 13 through 18. See, we're to live expecting a soon return is that we are, because of that, we're to maintain moral purity. First Thessalonians 4, verses 4 through 6, what does it state? That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. Oh, that we would guard ourselves morally. That we would not be trapped that our eyes would not gaze upon that which is not pure. That we would make that very covenant, oh God, that you would enable me to live a life of purity. Why? Because, Lord, your soon return. And then in chapter 5, where he says, listen, you be mindful, be watchful, be respectful to church leadership. And even as the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, oh, that we would not be ashamed at his coming. We're to live expecting a soon return. I guess I had that reality, and I used this example a number of times. Is that when I was a young man, a teenager, I don't know for... Some of you may remember this time frame. It was that as a teenager, your kind of like your status among the young people is how big a stereo system you could get. You remember how big the speakers used to be? You know, you would go to the store and it was kind of like the little ones, but then they just came out bigger and bigger, the big woofers, you know, and, and that kind of thing, or get your headset. It's just how loud you could get. You know, the house would literally pulsate. You know, now you can buy little bitty speakers, you know, and just they'll do ten times as loud a sound. But that was the thing. That was kind of like a status. But in my drugs and alcohol, I had this friend, and we were at his home, 
And he had his stereo system. And I said, oh, you think your stereo system is so good? You need to come over to my house. We just purchased one. And you can, you can hear our stereo. My mom and dad were going to a Sunday school fellowship. And they were going to be leaving the house. And so when we got there, mom and dad were gone. Everything's cool. They're not going to be back till about 11 o'clock at night. And so... My friend and I, we went into the house. We brought our alcohol, brought the drugs in with us. And so there, I turned up the stereo, and it was just booming and that kind of thing. And, and so I went down to the hallway. It was getting something from my bedroom. And when I came down the hallway, as I walked, then the front entrance to our house is right here. And so as I walked, and right when I got to the door, you heard this click. When there wasn't supposed to be a click. And it was the doorknob. And there I had my alcoholic beverage in my hand. And then the door just swung open. There stood my father. There was one moment my dad wasn't there. The very next moment, next second, my father was standing right in front of me. You know, my dad didn't yell at me. He said, what in the world are you doing, son? You know, don't you... No, he didn't say a word. He didn't have to. Because I'll never forget the look on his face. It was his eyes. His eyes were yelling at me. Not yelling anger or hatred, but it was one of love. And those eyes were saying, Son, have I not given you everything? Have I not provided for your every need? Have I not given you clothing? Have I not taken you on vacations? Have I not provided the food? Have I not provided the nurture of a loving home? Son, what are you doing with your life? You're throwing it away. I wish I could say that I just repented right then and fell on my knees and cried out to the Lord. But God never let me forget that look of my father's face. See, because there's a cry from heaven. The Lord Jesus, as he looks upon his bride, the church, and that cry says, have I not done everything for you? My precious blood has been spilled for you. Will you not come unto me? Live expecting his soon return. For it's one moment. He's not physically there. But the very next moment, split second, there's Jesus in all of his glory. And I want to be able to say, Oh Lord, I've done everything that you've asked of me. I don't want to be ashamed at his appearing. What do you say, church? Rocky Mount? Baptist Church, are we faithfully living for him? The motivation of love and our life of worship that as we go through those doors or here through the front, wherever you part, 
that, Lord, I desire to live a life of worship that wherever I go, people see Jesus, the reality of living in and through me.